Good morning again. That was a one, that's a wonderful hymn, that one. Blessed Assurance. What a beautiful hymn. I love that, that last part of the verse that says, Filled with His goodness, lost in His love. You know, to be filled in the Lord's goodness and lost in His love. What a, what a wonderful place to be, you know. Praising my Saviour all the day long. We'd been talking about, um, about depression for a couple of weeks and we've been speaking about how that affects um, Christians, how Christians actually suffer so terribly with depression. And um, to be able to sing a hymn, though, to praise the Saviour all the day long, to recognise for Christians that's not where we're supposed to be at. And it's a change. We understood that it was a change in attitude, a change completely recognising and knowing that we were once lost, dead in trespass and sin, and now we've been redeemed, you know, by the beautiful gospel of the Lord, you know. So rather than going through depression, our hearts need to be filled with joy, just joy. So I've got a series on joy that I'm going to be doing for the next few weeks. And the first part of that series is this morning's message, which is um, joy that's found in the gospel of Christ. Joy that's found in the gospel of Christ. And that was that passage that we read this morning that gave us a bit of a hint. Let's, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll have another look at our text. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we do, dear Lord, need to learn more about joy and about how we can experience joy in our Saviour. How we can experience, dear Lord, a, a joy, dear Father, that no matter what, our circumstances, dear Lord, we can rejoice, dear Lord, in the work that you would have within our lives and within our hearts and that we can joy no matter what we go through because of our salvation. We ask you, dear Father, that you would give us wisdom of understanding this morning, that we would understand this beautiful passage and that we can apply it to our lives, that we can understand the truth of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's have a look at it again. Romans chapter 5. So turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5. Everything that has gone before in Romans, in Romans speaks about the lead up within the heart of man moving towards salvation. Okay. In chapter 4, he makes clear what our salvation is, that the, that, the, that, um, the just live now by faith. So we've now been made just. And now he says, therefore, in verse 1, being justified by faith, therefore, so something that has now occurred, therefore now, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. 
For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. There's a story that uh, a beautiful book that was written many years ago by by a man by the name of John Bunyan. A lot of you might have heard of this individual. He was a fairly young man when he came to the Lord and really articulate even though uneducated. His writings are almost inspired. You could almost say they were inspired. So wonderful and so precious are his words and how he puts them forward. They're written in simple English, yet they're almost like a poetic prose. You know, you can't help, but when you read his writing in the original, um, that you almost feel like your next communication, the next way that you speak, you're almost speaking in poetry. It has that much of an impact on you. It is an incredible set of writings. And he wrote Pilgrim's Progress while he was in prison for a period of 12 years, simply because he was preaching the gospel. Simply because of preaching the gospel in England, in England, under King Charles. And um, you had to have a license to preach. So you couldn't do what I'm doing now. You had to have a license. And the license was given by the throne, by government. And John Bunyan didn't have one. But John Bunyan preached and he preached about Christ. He preached about the new birth. He preached about the wonder of who Christ is. While he was in prison, however, a story came to his mind. He, he, didn't, he didn't actually set out to write this book, but he began writing anyway. And he tells of himself as in a dream where he laid himself down to sleep and he dreamed a dream and he saw a man. And this man turned out to be named Christian. The entire book is filled with allegory. So everybody's names are allegorical. They refer to something else. So Christian is one. He's um, his wife, Christiana, as well. Uh, He met with an individual by the name of Evangelist. While he was struggling within his own heart about what he had just discovered written in this book. He lived in a place called the City of Destruction. That was his town. That's where he spent his life. He lived in the city of destruction and wasn't aware until the reading of his book that that city was set to be overthrown imminently. He had a burden upon his back that he struggled with. The burden we recognise is the burden of sin. We see that really clearly in the text because there's a point at which it simply rolls off and that's the time where he meets with the Saviour. But prior to it, just before he enters into the wicked gate, which we'll talk about, he goes through what's known as the slow of despond. 
A slow is a miry, um, uh, uh, miry ground where it can be relatively deep and it's filled with filth and dirt and, and, it's, and it's disgusting to move through. Um, but he goes through that before he actually makes that point of salvation. And when we spoke about depression, we spoke about how people can be so downcast and they must sometimes come to the most downward part of their lives before they would accept Christ as Saviour. So even though we look at it and we're sorrowful for those that are so downtrodden, um, it could be the beginning of life for them. Though they are going through this deep valley, they could find themselves at the other end of joy and a joy that they can really, really trust in. So we take up this story and I want to read a couple of passages to you throughout the sermon this morning and to give you a taste for Bunyan in the hope that maybe you might pick up his book, but also that you would understand how this allegory sort of fits together. So at this particular point, he... um, He's, he's being chased down by two individuals, one obstinate and the other one pliable. Both of them are desiring to stop him from fleeing from the city of destruction and running to the celestial city. Obstinate by this stage has fallen by the way, pliable remains with him and pliable wants to know a little bit more about where he's headed. So we take up the story here. Now I saw in my dream that when Obstinate was gone back, Christian and Pliable went talking over the plain, and thus they began their discourse. Christian, come, neighbour Pliable, how do you do? I am glad you are persuaded to go along with me, had even Obstinate himself, but felt that what I have felt of the powers and the terrors of what is yet unseen, he would not thus lightly have given us the back. Pliable says... Come, neighbour Christian, since there is none but us two here, tell me now further what what the things are and how to be enjoyed, whither we are going. Christian, I can better conceive of them with my mind than speak of them with my tongue, but yet since you are desirous to know, I will read of them in my book. Pliable, and do you think that the words of your book are certainly true? Yes, verily, for it was made by him that cannot lie. I love that answer. Beautiful answer. Well said, what things are they? Well, there is an endless kingdom to be inhabited, an everlasting life to be given us, that we may inhabit that kingdom forever. Well said, and what else? There are crowns of glory to be given us and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the firmament of heaven. This is very pleasant. And what else? There shall be no more crying nor sorrow, For he that is owner of the place will wipe all tears from our eyes. Oh, and what company shall we have there? Oh, there shall be with us seraphims and cherubims, cherubims, creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look on them. There also you shall meet with thousands and ten thousands that have gone before us to that place. None of them are hurtful, but loving and holy. Everyone walking in the sight of God and standing in his presence with acceptance forever. In a word, there we shall see the elders with their golden crowns. There we shall see the holy virgins with their golden harps. There we shall see men 
that by the world were cut in pieces, burnt in flames, eaten of beasts, drowned in the seas, for the love that they bear to the Lord of the place, all well and clothed with immortality as with a garment. Pliable says, the hearing of this is enough to ravish one's heart, but are these things to be enjoyed? How shall we get to, the, to be sharers thereof? The Lord, the governor of the country, hath recorded that in this book, the substance of which is, if we be truly willing to have it, he will bestow it upon us freely. Pliable says, well, my good companion, glad am I to hear of these things. Come on, let us mend our pace. Christian says, I cannot go fast as I would by reason of this burden that is on my back. Now I saw in my dream that just as they had ended this talk, they drew near to a very miry slow that was in the midst of the plain. And they, being heedless, did both fall suddenly into the bog. The name of the slow was Despond. Here, therefore, they wallowed for a time, being grievously debauched uh, with the dirt. And Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink in the mire. Pliable said. Then said Pliable, Ah, neighbour, Christian, where are you now? Truly, said Christian, I do not know. At that, Pliable began to be offended and angrily said to his fellow, Is this the happiness you have told me all this while of? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect betwixt this and our journey's end? May I get out again with my life? You shall possess the brave country alone for me. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire and on that side of the slow, which was next to his own house. So away he went and Christian saw him no more. Wherefore, Christian was left to tumble in the slow of despond alone. But still he endeavoured to struggle to that side of the slow that was still further from his own house and next to the wicket gate, the which he did but could not get out because of the burden that was upon his back. But I beheld in my dream that a man came to him whose name was Help and asked him what he did there. Sir, said Christian, I was bid to go this way by a man called Evangelist who directed me also to yonder gate that I might escape the wrath to come. And as I was going thither, I fell in here. But why did you not look for the steps? said Help. Fear followed me so hard that I fell the next way and fell in. I fled the next way and fell in. Then said Help, give me thy hand. So he gave him his hand and he drew him out and set him upon sound ground and bid him on his way. Then I stepped to him that plucked him out and said, Sir, wherefore, since over this place is the way from the city of destruction to yonder gate, is it that this plat is not mended? that poor travellers might go thither with more security. And he said unto me, This miry slow is such a place as cannot be mended. It is the descent whither the scum and filth that attends conviction for sin doth continually run, and therefore it is called the slow of despond. For still, as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition, there ariseth in his soul many fears and doubts, and discouraging apprehensions, which all of them get together and settle in this place. And this is the reason for the badness of the ground. It's an interesting idea 
to consider that when the gospel is shared with someone, when the truth of the nature of Christ and the hope and the joy of salvation is shared with someone, and that conviction of their own sin draws within them, there is also a sense of despondency. And through that despondency and through that grief of heart, there are two decisions, potential decisions, that are to be made. The first one, the one that's most often made, is the one that was taken by pliable. I'm not going to be thinking about this anymore. I'm not going to be thinking of my own sin. I'm not going to be thinking about any of these things. I'm going to put it away from me because it's too difficult. It's too rough. It's too, um, it's too conflicting to deal with. It's too confronting. It's right there. I don't want to deal with it. I want to get out of this and lead my life the way I lived it before. But when an understanding and a recognition of our own sin drives us to recognise that we cannot remain here, that there is a city of destruction that we dwell in and we want to run from it, then there's no turning back. But what we're seeking for ultimately is that joy that will settle our souls, that will settle our hearts, that would give us comfort and peace and joy for the rest of our lives. Pliable thinks that he can get it back in the land, back in the world where he was before. Christian recognises that that world is set for destruction, that all the happiness that it promises cannot deliver. And he recognises and he sees it because he'd found it written in his book. So we look in the book and we see the same thing. The world is headed to be dissolved. Everything that's within this world will fall apart. Yet, every man seeks the same thing. We seek happiness. We seek after joy. We, we want to be at peace within our hearts and within our lives. That's what we're looking for. And this is really made clear. In, in the United States, there was a document that was given called the Declaration of Independence. You would have heard of it. A part of that declaration makes this bold claim and have a listen to it because it sets the government as the security for this claim. That if the government hinders the happiness of man, then the government is to be dispelled with and a new government put in place. Can you believe that? All to do with the seeking of one thing, happiness. Have a listen. It says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it goes on and it says, To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, remember the ends? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organising its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. 
So written in the very Declaration of Independence of the United States is this uh, uh, recognition of the desire of happiness for all of mankind. It's written in there. Blaise Pascal said simply this. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. What a statement. All for the sake of finding happiness. Joy is what we're looking for. Happiness is what the world seeks. Mortimer Adler said this. He was the uh, chief editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica, the great books of the Western world. He said this. He said, when men say that what they want is happiness, they imply that having it, they would ask for nothing more. They would ask for nothing more. Make sense? It's an incredible, incredible thing to think about. But you see, we seek after happiness, but we're all wanting to be happy in different ways, different means. Okay? So there are those who are sick who would be made happy by having good health. Okay, there are those who are poor who would be made happy by wealth, they believe. Those who are lonely would be happy in company. Those who are unmarried, for a spouse. Those who are homeless, for a home. Those who are childless, for a child. Those who are unemployed, for employment, and so on. See, we're all looking for something else that we believe will make us happy. Okay, so what do you recognise within that desire of happiness? What are they actually looking for? It's the circumstance, isn't it? Whatever my circumstance is, if I feel a lack within that circumstance, then I lack happiness. But if that circumstance is filled the way I want it to be filled, then I will feel happy and I'll be happy. My mother was a lot like that. So she, <laughs> she used to say to me, you know, and it was all these different times throughout my life, you know, She'd say to me, you know, when you have a good job, then I'd be happy. You know, so I'd get a good job. And then when you marry, when you marry, then I'd be happy. You know, I got married. When you have a house, when you have a house, I'd be happy. You know, we have a house. And when you have children, when you have children, I'd be happy. I had children. When your sister, when she marry, then I'd be happy. Needless to say that... Um, she was rarely ever happy. She was rarely ever happy. But like all people whose temporal attainment loses its luster, uh, she too was only as happy as her next pursuit. You know? And that seems to be the case. Um, the world continues to paraphrase what Thomas Aquinas said, and he said this. He said, "'Happy is the man who has all his desires.'" or whose every wish is fulfilled. And that's how people think today. That's how people think. They want to have all their desires. They want to have every wish fulfilled. But the problem is, as they go on in life, they're creating new wishes. So they're looking for the next object to make them happy. And it goes on and it goes on. And so how can any man have every wish fulfilled? At what point does he have every wish fulfilled? Is it not at the end of his life? So what happens through the journey? 
what happens through the journey. When happiness is determined only by that which is yet to be attained, in the meantime, you are not happy. Likely, in the meantime, you are frustrated because you have yet to attain the thing that you think will make you happy. Benedict Spinoza, philosopher for the 17th, in the 17th century, he holds happiness as the ideal of man in his book Ethics. But he finds it necessary to say that the way to happiness must indeed be difficult, since it is so seldom discovered. Since it is so seldom discovered. And Mortimer Adler adds this, and he completes it and it summarises this list of quotes for us. He says, there is a, with regards to the problem of finding happiness, he says this, he says, man can only come to the possession of all good things only in the succession of all his days, not simultaneously. And so happiness is never actually achieved, but is always in the process of being achieved. When that process is completed, the man is dead, his life is done. So what's the hope of finding happiness within this world? Was pliable looking for something that was attainable back in the world? Pliable couldn't find happiness back in the world, but that's where he went. He went back in the world. Christian was given the wisdom to understand that joy is not found in the world. That joy is found only in the salvation of his soul in Christ. Only in the gospel of Christ. And that's the wonderful blessing that we have. And this next point, the discovery of joy. We find that it's the natural man, uh, he doesn't desire the things that pertain to God. Right? The natural man doesn't inwardly desire it. He desires the things of the world. He thinks that the little dainties that are found within the world is something that is going to make him happy. That's going to give him contentment in life. That's going to give him peace in life. Paul said in verse 9 of his text, he said, Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the atonement. Christian desired more than anything to flee from the city of destruction. He desired a better state, a better place. He sought for and discovered that there was a celestial city. But you need to understand that he first needed to be told he currently had his abode in a city pending destruction. He needed to be told that that is part of the gospel. You can't separate the gospel into only the good things, speaking about the future attainment of heaven. You can't just speak of that. You need to make and be made aware that you currently abide in a city of destruction, in a place where we'll be imminently destroyed. There's no time frame. You have no idea when this time will come. Okay, you have no idea. There's no signs. There's no little indicators. Oh, it's coming close. It's coming close. The Lord's going to come and take me for my soul. No, when the Lord has done all he can with you for his own purpose, 
then you may be called away. And you don't know when that is. So it could be imminent. Our lives were set to be overthrown. Our souls set for destruction in a lake of fire. But by the mercy of God, we had already gone in. If it wasn't for God, we'd already be there. We'd already be there. But we heard and we were told and were warned by some person. We were, um, even, even through someone else's petition before God, someone else prayed for you. If you're born again today, there is a chance that someone prayed for you, that someone prayed earnestly that you would be saved. Now, they might have prayed once or twice, but they may have dedicated every single night and every single morning to pray for your soul. If you are born again, there is a very strong chance someone prayed for you somewhere. In the allegory of Christian, we find him meeting a man called Evangelist. This happens a little bit earlier. It's only a short portion. I'm not going to go into such a long diatribe as I did in the first. But I want you to see how this meeting came about. He meets a person called Evangelist. This is what the text says. He says, Now I saw upon a time when he was walking in the fields, that he was, as he was wont, reading in his book and greatly distressed in mind. And as he read, he burst out, as he had done before, crying, What shall I do to be saved? I saw also that he looked this way and that way as if he would run. Yet he stood still, because, as I perceived, he could not tell which way to go. I looked then and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him, who asked, Wherefore dost thou cry? He answered, Sir, I perceived by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. Then said Evangelist, Why not willing to die, since this life is attended with so many evils? The man answered, Because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into Tophet, which is hell. And so, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit, I am sure, to go to judgment, and from thence to execution, and the thoughts of these things make me cry. Then said Evangelist, If this be thy condition, why standest thou still? He answered, Because I, not know, I know not whither to go. Then he gave him a parchment roll, and there was written within, Fly from the wrath to come. Now, he'll share with him where he's got to go. But how important is that to consider? When there is an awakening of the heart, an awakening of the soul, an awakening of the recognition that there is a creator and there is a God and you stand in judgment because as soon as you recognize God is, you can't but feel convicted of sin. You can't but feel a recognition and an understanding of judgment. You see, the two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. This isn't a case of... Okay, if God exists, then um, if God exists, then He might be a God that's pretty happy with what I'm doing. Do you notice that everybody who denies the reality of God denies the reality of God for one reason and one reason only, and that that is they know that they know that there would be judgment. They know it. They know it. That's why, rather than considering and having their thoughts pertaining to God, they would rather ignore that he's there, finding themselves in blissful, willful 
ignorance. So Christian doesn't know which way to go. He's recognised it. He's felt the conviction of his own heart and his own soul. He knows he needs to run, but he doesn't know where. Where do I run? Where do I go? You know, who's going to save me from this wrath to come? Because it's going to come no matter which way I turn. I need to be saved. And that's what he's looking for. You know, and we found this in the Gospels. And when the Gospel was given to us, and it's given us the direction, it's given us the place where we can go, and the direction where we can move to, we run there with, with joy. And that's where we get to this third point. In verse 11, Paul says, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Attaining the joy, the attainment of joy is this next portion. And this is the part that can often be really difficult because this is the part here. To attain to this joy, we know what we need to do, but the worst thing in the world happens to us. We procrastinate. We procrastinate. We put it off. The one thing you don't want to be putting off is this. And yet it seems to be something that we do. I'll do it later. I've got time. The devil loves that. He loves the idea of you believing that you have time. You know? My, my mum, again, I shared the gospel with her and she was holding out. She was basically saying, well, I, I just want to... I just want to do whatever I'm doing. I want to... Oh, no, that wasn't her. That was somebody else. She, she'd just say, I'm worried that if I do that, it might not be true, so I'll wait until the end of my life and then I'll do it. And I said, but, Mum, you might not have opportunity. You know, you might not have opportunity. You know, there's the famous speech in Pollyanna, death comes unexpectedly, you know, and... It's certain that it can come unexpectedly. Not everybody has the grace given to them of a, of, a, of a recognition of their mortality in order to be able to make that decision. But mum had cancer, so she knew she was going to die. She knew it. And yet it still seemed to be holding out. Now, I, I don't know. I gave her a copy of the Bible. I told her where she could read and I pleaded with her that she would accept the eternal life that comes from the Lord, that she would find the joy in him. And I don't know. I don't know if she did. I don't know if she'd returned to the Lord. I don't know if she was saved when she was 16. She told me a, an account of her life and uh, it was a brief sort of testimony. I don't know. But I do know there are so many people who will say to themselves, not yet, not yet. On this point, they want to procrastinate on. They might be go-getters in their entire life, going after those things that they desire, but on this point, they're going to procrastinate on. They're going to say, not yet. Not yet. We're turned about in our search for life, turned about by the comfort of familiarity in this world. So we find this world so comfortable because we, we know it. But if I was to accept Jesus Christ, if I was to accept him, then things might change. And I might not like how they change. And yet, there's joy. It's nothing but joy. 
Could you imagine joy in tribulation? Could you imagine joy in your trials? Could you imagine joy in your sorrow? Could you imagine? How can I possibly be happy even though bad things are happening around me? That's what God's promise. Is that anything like the world? It's the exact opposite of the world. It's the exact opposite. It's not based on circumstance. It's based on Christ. It's based on the gospel. But no, I'm more familiar with this world. I, I, I don't, I don't want to... I, I, I'm worried that God might have me to... have me to stop what I'm doing. I'm worried that I might have to stop what I'm, how I'm living. I'm worried that I might have to be a preacher. You know? Or God might ask me to go into a mission field. Or God might ask me, you know what? God will never, ever ask you to do that which he hasn't already put within your heart as your absolute desire. It will be all fulfilling. It'll be the only thing that you want to do is what God is going to have put within you. But your desire has to first be after God. Trust in him. So in our story, Christian is given the direction and he runs toward the light that he's given. And he says this, he's looking for this narrow wicked gate. The man therefore read it and looking upon evangelist very carefully said, whither must I fly? Because remember he said flee from the wrath to come. And he said, whither must I fly? Then said evangelist pointing with his finger over a very wide field, do you see yonder wicked gate? And the man said, no. Then said the other, do you see yonder shining light? And he said, I, I think I do. Then said Evangelist, keep that light in your eye and go up directly thereto. So shalt thou see the gate at which when thou knockest, it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door, but his wife and children perceiving it began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on, crying, Life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled toward the middle of the plain. He ran to the light. He ran to the light. The Bible says that light has come into this world. And men love darkness rather than light. And they love darkness because their deeds are evil. Light has come. Light has come. Light is preached at, at many pulpits. Not all, sadly, today. Not all. Many pulpits today don't preach the light of Christ. They don't preach about the joy that can be found in the gospel of our salvation. They don't preach it. They would rather fluff the pillows of those who are asleep to keep them that way. You know. But you hear... If you hear about the light, if you hear about fleeing from the wrath to come, don't turn back. Run. Run. Run with all your heart toward that light because it's only then that you will attain to this joy that I'm speaking of this morning. My last point. The receipt of joy. Paul said in the first few verses there, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Therefore, being justified by faith, being justified by faith, therefore being justified. Turn back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. The first four chapters of Romans deals with both the dilemma of mankind and his ruined state and his risk of falling further into greater and greater depravity. He deals with the Gentile. That's you and me. We're Gentiles unless, unless you're a Jew. There are only two people in the world. There are Gentiles and there are Jews. According to scripture, that's it. There are two types of people. So we're Gentiles, as far as I'm aware, even though my name is Judetti. I don't think it means that I'm descended from Jews. But anyway, who knows? Who knows? I've been told I got the nose for it, and I definitely got mistaken for a Jewish person when I was in Israel, um, when we went to the Wailing Wall. So in verse 10, from verse 10, we've got nine simple but profound statements that perfectly summarise the entire human race and their ruinous state. Here we have a picture of the entire population who dwell in the city Christian is fleeing from. This is the entire population. Everything that's written about them here are those people who dwell in that city. And it could be describing you. As it is written, he says, there is none righteous... No, not one. So none are righteous. We can find ourselves really comfortable in that, can't we? You know, you're a sinner. Oh, well, everyone sins. Somehow within our minds, we think that just because we're a sinner and everybody else sins and everybody else is unrighteous, we find some sort of comfort in this companionship, you know. But friends, you're going to be judged alone. You are going to be judged you, yourself, without anybody else there. Just because everybody else sins doesn't mean that it's right. This is not a place where you want to follow the crowd. Not here. Not here. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. That's a pretty profound statement. There is none seeking after God. It's almost as if God has to be doing a work within their lives first before they would seek after him. The Bible tells us to seek after God, yeah? There's a commandment there that we are to seek after God. And if we seek him with all our heart, we shall find him, Scripture says. But there seems to be a strong indicator that left to our natural state, we won't seek after God. There has to be a work being done within us first. Remember what I mentioned to you about someone's praying for you? Well, because of that prayer, perhaps the Lord is beginning to do a work within your life to have you to seek after God. Someone awakened Christian that he would read in his book and that he would take seriously what, he, what was written. Someone did that. There is none that seeketh after God in their natural state, however. Verse 12 says, They are all gone out of the way. 
They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. You think that you're good. You think that you're doing well. You think that just because you treat kindly someone else next to you, you think that just because you've helped someone across the road, you've helped a lady with a flat tyre, you've gone back and given the $10 extra change at the supermarket that they gave you by mistake, you think you've done good. The Bible here says none do good. Everything that we do in this way, in this way, thinking that we're giving ourselves credit, right? We're doing it for the puffing up of our own hearts. We're not doing it because of the love for the Lord in our natural state. This is before we become, you come to Christ. What does the Bible say about all our works? What's it like? It's filthy rags before God. You know, our horizontal goodness has no relationship to our vertical relationship with the Lord. We can be a Mother Teresa to the people that are around us. We can extend ourselves. We can sacrifice our own lives completely for the people that are around us. But if we don't have a relationship with the Lord, if our vertical relationship doesn't even exist, all our goodness here is just going to be burned up in the end. It's not worth anything. True goodness comes first with a relationship with the Lord, knowing Christ, being born again, recognising that you are a sinner. And you dwell in the city of destruction. That has to happen first. It says there in verse 13, their throat is an open sepulchre. Their throat is like a grave, okay? An open grave. With their tongues, they have used deceit. They have lied, okay? Without, we don't lie with anything else other than our tongues, generally speaking, okay? And that's where we're lying. So we, with their tongues, they have used deceit. And it says the poison of asps is under their lips, this is the state of man and our natural state, our natural way of thinking. Then it goes on in verse 14, it says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You know, that's what our relationship's like to those gentlemen there sitting up for tomorrow. Um, that's what our relationship is like with those that are around us. You know, our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. The way of peace they have not known. This is what Christian's looking for. In that allegory that we're looking for, he's looking for peace. He wants to run from the city of destruction and he wants to find that peace. But the way of peace they have not known. They stand still, not knowing which way to go. And this is the last one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's, that's probably the hardest one. That's the hardest one. Because, you know, when there's no fear of God before your eyes, when there's no fear of God, and I'm talking about absolute terrifying fear, I'm not talking about a fear with respect to respect. I'm not talking about, a, 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 you know, some sort of a, you know, fear that Christians would generally have, which is a little bit of that fear, but also a fear that is that which is due to the Lord, that awe and respect unto God. I'm talking about an absolute terrifying fear of God. Jesus made it really clear. He says, fear not man who can kill the body. Fear him, fear him who is able to kill the body and cast the soul into hell. That's who you should fear. And unfortunately, with all our confidence that we stand with today, we'll be all right. The moment of death, there will be nothing other than an absolute terrifying fear. 
a fear of knowing that you've missed the truth of God. And that's the thing that we lack within our lives, but it will come. It will come, that fear, unless we come to Christ. So how do we be saved? The last text we'll turn to, and I'll finish on this, Acts chapter 16. You can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. There's a particular time here where Paul and Silas are taken and put into prison and they've got a prison guard watching over them and uh, they're taken and put into prison simply because of the sharing of the gospel. They've been preaching the gospel out in the streets, out in the temple and now they've been taken and they've been thrown into, into prison at this point. And there's a guard who stands watch over them. Verse 25 in Acts chapter 16. And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. Verse 26 he says, And and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awakening out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in, and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out, and brought them out, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Imagine this. Imagine this. You're in prison for the preaching of the gospel of Christ. Are you in prison justly, do you think? Do you think you're in prison justly? No, you're not in prison justly. You're preaching the gospel of Christ. As far as the Lord is concerned, that's what you should be doing. And if it means going to prison, then so be it. But they're in prison for sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what are they doing? They're praying and they're singing. They're singing hymns and psalms. They're praising God. And incredibly, at this time, there's an earthquake. And the doors are opened. And their bands are loosed. Their shackles fall from them. Now, a charismatic would interpret that how? It's a sign from God. It's time to go. This is God. He's loosed our bands. He's he's opened all the doors. We can go. We're free. This is God's doing. But what was the discernment of Paul and Silas? Incredible discernment that they had. For some reason, they did not believe that to be the case. All for the sake of one man. One man. They were willing to remain shackled. They were willing to remain imprisoned for the sake of one man who, seeing them and seeing that the doors were open, knew absolutely there's no chance that anybody would remain. And he was willing to take out his sword and kill himself. You understand that that's how it goes. You, as the prison guard, are responsible for the lives of those that are in prison. If they shall escape, your life is forfeit. It's forfeit according to the rules of the land. He was just about to take out that knife and kill himself, to take the sword out and kill himself. And Paul says to him, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. It wasn't just Paul and Silas. We are all here. 
at this, could you imagine that God? Could you imagine that God who recognised the work of God in their life, the love of God in their life? For these people to be singing, where were they singing? They were singing in prison. Happy state for people? No. Our goal of happiness doesn't include going to prison. You know? It includes staying out of prison. They were in prison with joy, singing psalms and hymns and praising God. And this God, overwhelmed by the love of God demonstrated by these individuals who remained, what else could he say? What else could he answer? He's been hearing the the praises of God. He's been hearing the hymns which teach the doctrines of God. And now he asks the, the fundamental question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Is that not the question that you should be asking? Is it not the question you should be asking? What must I do to be saved? That's the question. That's the question that grants eternal life. That's the question that answers the questions of joy. That's the question that fulfills your heart. That's the question that you want to live with for the rest of your life, having it answered. Paul answers it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Mind you, it's not just Paul that answered them. They, plural, said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. There is joy and the beginning of joy is found in the gospel of Christ. The beginning of joy is found in the gospel of Christ. That's where joy begins. And it doesn't matter what else goes on in your life. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are in your life. It doesn't matter if someone acknowledges that special day. We had a beautiful birthday party yesterday for for Saskia for her 21st. But it doesn't matter if someone acknowledges it or not. When you have joy within your heart, you have peace with God and that's all that matters. It doesn't matter if something else goes on within your life that someone is, is, is upsetting you in some particular way. It doesn't matter so much. I have joy with the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're defrauded. It doesn't matter if you're imprisoned. It doesn't matter if you're beaten. None of that matters. I have joy because I have peace with God. That's the beginning, And that's just the beginning of joy. I've got an entire series to deal with joy. That's just the beginning, though. Let's pray. Father, do give you thanks, my Lord. What a joy it is to see our Saviour. What a joy it is to know the Lord. And what a joy it is to recognise this beautiful salvation, one that you offer to every man and every woman, every child, every person, dear Father, who has, dear Lord, to be recognising the wonderful joy of God through our Saviour. I pray, dear Lord, that an understanding might be found within our own hearts, that we understand and know that if we still dwell in this city of destruction, that we would flee. And I ask you, dear Father, please, that we would flee quickly. Help us seek after God with all our heart and let your gospel, dear Lord, permeate our hearts and soul. I pray, dear Lord, that if any be here, dear Lord, who know not Christ, and who are yet to know Christ. I pray, dear Father, that your conviction of their own heart may indeed lead them 
sadly into this slough of despond, that they may only find the steps that lead to eternal life. Those that they would seek after that light to that wicked gate, that their burden would be removed, that they would have a fullness of joy. Let them not dwell within that city long. Take them away from there quickly, dear Lord, I pray. I thank you for this day and thank you for this service this morning. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen.